Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. We remember it as a Bible story from Sunday school. The cute little ark in the shape of a bathtub, animals that barely fit on the boat. But as we look into God's Word, the Bible reveals a much different picture. The epic journey of Noah and his family was not just a bedtime story, but a real event involving a real boat. I'm Andrew Walter. I'm the student pastor. The flood and the ark is something that we talk about to your students. Last month, Rylan asked me, would you be available to preach on the veracity of the flood, September 15th and 16th? And I responded, you want me to preach about the flood on a third weekend in a room with a tank full of water? I'd love to. Then I looked up what the, ver- what the word veracity meant. It means truthfulness, accuracy, correctness. We're going to explore a fascinating account of faith and courage. And I want to start with a book written in 1961. It's a book called The Genesis Flood. It was huge when it came out. It was a turning point in how Christians viewed the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb wrote this book and gave a scientific explanation for a worldwide flood and the ark that survived that global disaster. Dr. Morris went to be with his Lord and Creator in 2006, but Dr. Whitcomb still continues to lecture and teach on this subject. This book, The Genesis Flood, has been powerful in taking something that seemed too hard to believe and making you say, oh, that's not so far-fetched. Whitcomb and Morris showed the world that the biblical ark was large enough to hold all the land-dwelling, air-breathing animals. They also established that the dimensions of the ark given in the Bible gave the ark the needed proportions to make it a truly seaworthy craft. They had the ark as box-shaped, but Dr. Whitcomb states that the box design that they came up with could be improved on. The dimensions of the ark are recorded in Genesis. It's in cubits, 300 long, which is at least... 450 feet. 50 wide, the height, 30 cubits. From those three dimensions, you get a rectangular shape. And God did not record in the text what the ark looked like. That's left for us to figure out. And we don't know the exact shape. We just know its size. We need to separate between holding on to things that the Bible clearly gives details about, statements that the Bible plainly says, things that we stand by, but we don't change. But we need to be prepared to be flexible about man's models that are built on the Bible. 
The Ark in the Shape of a Box gained popularity in 1976. There was a documentary, In Search of Noah's Ark. This film presented the shape of the ark as box-like. In the film, there were unsubstantiated eyewitness accounts and a few blurred photographs of a structure on Mount Ararat. It's important to understand there is no solid evidence to support the claim that Noah's Ark has been found and that it is box-shaped. I personally don't believe that it has been found. And that doesn't bother me, because Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You don't have to find a piece of the ark to believe that it was there. Somewhere, buried deep in those mountains, and if and when someday God shows it to us, we will say, Lord, we are amazed, because the design of that gigantic thing that you put people and air-breathing animals into is exactly what was needed for the destruction it survived to deliver our human ancestors from whom all of us have descended. Noah and his wife, their sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, left the ark and entered a whole new world. Imagine the exciting stories that they passed down to their children and the generations that followed, stories that were told over many generations. But sometimes the stories were told wrong. They were distorted. There are stories recorded all over the world of a great flood. These stories fall under the category of ancient myths and legends. Even though they are partial descriptions of the actual events, the bits and truth they do contain match dramatically with the real story. The Australian Aborigines have dreamtime legends of a man who built a boat. He had three sons on the boat. And at the end of a global flood, there's a rainbow. The reason you see so many different legends in so many different cultures around the world is because they have a basis in truth. Noah's Ark happened before Genesis was written down. The Babylonians wrote about a great flood in the Gilgamesh epic. It was discovered in cuneiform tablets, which I had to read part of as going through college. And let me tell you, that was a real tablet turner. <laughs> Those tablets say that the Ark was built in seven days by Utnapishtim. And it was a cube, 180 cubits by 180 cubits by 180 cubits. There is a contradiction when you claim that the Bible got its Noah story, that the source of the Noah story comes from these other legends. Because these other legends have a lot of mistakes in them. They say silly things, like making a ship that looks like a cube, and other mistakes that are obvious. The proportions in the Bible are very realistic. So realistic that the proportions happen to match modern cargo ships. Now, we wouldn't expect that. If it was a made-up story, we wouldn't expect them to accidentally choose 300 by 50 by 30 as the proportions of this imaginary vessel. When they make cargo ships, 50 by 30 
is the typical proportions you see on the cross-section of cargo ships because it gives the right stability. The Bible is specific on the ark's dimensions, but it doesn't go into detail about its shape. The only possible description in the Bible is a Hebrew word, teva. Some say the definition of teva is box, but that's not necessarily true. The word teva, the word for ark in the Bible, teva, nobody knows what it means. Teva only appears twice in the Bible. It appears for Noah's teva, and then there's the teva for Moses' baby basket. In any language, the meaning of a word is understood the more it is used in different contexts. But when it's only mentioned a couple of times like that, I don't know. But we have a God who has given us an imagination to fill in details for a word that we don't understand. So Teva doesn't necessarily mean box, because Moses' baby basket was a little basket. So if it's not a box, what should we picture? How would, how would we even build an ark? Uh, what is the technology? What's the technology like before the flood? Well, there are clues in the Bible. First of all, the long lifespans. If a person lives for centuries, they are going to be very experienced and skilled in a lot of different areas. Also, they are very healthy. To live long, it implies that you are a very healthy person with a healthy body, so you are very capable and able to do a lot of work. The Bible makes it clear that the first people on this earth were brilliant, even knowing that technology was not like it is today. The basic brilliance of people was so much that even Tubal Cain, long before the flood, Tubal Cain, who is the father of every maker of cutting instruments of brass and iron, we could expect that the technology level was the same as ancient Egypt building the pyramids the same as ancient Greece building their great buildings, China, and the incredible structures that they built. God gave Noah technology, tools, and the help available to him to build this ark for over 120 years. This week, my 11-year-old son came in, this ark was up on the computer screen, and he said, how did he build that? Well, this week, uh, three boys and I went and we mowed, uh, it was about five, five acres that we mowed, push mowed, and weed eated. And we got it done in less than two hours. And the three boys and I were amazed at how quick we had got that mowing done. And I told them, remember how fast we mowed this week? Imagine if you three boys and I had 120 years to do something. Imagine what we could do. And his eyes got big, and then I got scared. <laughs> Noah was perfectly capable of building a gigantic ark. Noah built a ship, but it wasn't just any shape. That 300 by 50 by 30, that is a big clue. 
those dimensions look like a ship. They look like a ship with a long hull. And that's not what you would expect. If you're going to build something that floats on the water, you wouldn't make it so long. It takes more work to build it long. It takes more wood. It puts the boat at more danger as it crosses over waves that it would break. That means that the ark was built for comfort as well as strength and stability. I want you to write those in those blanks there. Those dimensions, 300 by 50 by 30, they balance comfort and strength and stability. In order to make it comfortable, the ark needs to be running through the waves. The other thing that seems far-fetched is the construction of the ark. How could such a large wooden boat hold together in rough seas? There was a documentary produced just a few years ago by the BBC, and it asked some tough questions about a wooden vessel 300 cubits long. Now, the Bible assumes it was possible to build this monster vessel out of wood alone. It's a pretty big assumption. The familiar image from the storybooks and cartoons of our childhood is of a huge wooden ark with the animals marching inside two by two. But that is a 19th century image. It is completely at odds with what could have been built in biblical times. According to Tom Vosmer, an expert on ancient boats, not even 19th century engineers could have built a 450-foot ark out of wood alone. They had to use steel frames inside much smaller wooden boats just to keep them afloat. The problem with a 450-foot boat made of wood is that the wood as a material cannot maintain the shape of the boat. And the boat would start to distort at sea, the seams would open up, and, and it would sink. It's a safe bet that the huge ark would spring hundreds of leaks along the length of its huge hull and sink like a stone. It bothers people when they wrap their mind around how large the ark is. The size of the ark is troubling. One argument against the authenticity of the Bible is that you can't build a wooden ship that big. And in the same breath, they usually pick ships from 100 years ago, maybe 18th or 19th century sailing vessels, and they say uh, they had trouble building ships longer than 300 feet. It's impossible for ancient people to build Noah's Ark. But ancient ships are constructed different than modern sailing vessels. I'm going to cover this quickly because there are a lot of new words and a lot of engineering ideas. But here's what I want you to see. This edge-jointed planking design that is seen in ancient ships takes the BBC's claim that it can't be done and it blows them out of the water. It's not so far-fetched. In this uh, exhibit of the Ark under construction, we're 
treating the planking as uh, exactly the same way as the Greeks did the planks. When, when Greeks built their ships, the large ships they used to use multiple layers of planking. And they had this special trick where they had joints in between each plank. And you can see the joint here, they're, they're a tenon and they fit into a mortise in the adjacent plank. And that locks the two planks together. There's no way they can move. There's no way that they can break a seal and let the water in. This is a very advanced technique. In fact, it wasn't even seen at all in any of the ships built in the last few centuries in Europe and America. Um, we believe this method would allow the ship, the Noah's Ark, to be built without any problems at all with uh, movement of the planks and leaking, uh, which did plague some very large wooden ships. Um, interestingly, wooden nails, called tree nails or trunnels, are actually a very successful way to join planks to the frame. The reason these work so well is because, first of all, they're a nice big diameter so it doesn't dig into the wood. But what happens is, when water hits the wood, the wood expands, seals off the hole and makes it impossible to remove. That's a lot of work. That is not a quick way to build a ship. In the 18th, 19th centuries, they're not going to bother with that. That's why ships would loosen up. That's where we get the phrase, a tight ship. That's where that comes from. When the ships were new, when they first started, they were nice and tight. All the joints would hold together. And over time, they became loose ships. The ancient Greeks had a much higher quality of hull. They built the hull with planks that were mortise and tenon. Here's the, uh, the Greek ship. The hull was strong enough to ram another ship and light enough to be carried onto the beach by the crew. It doesn't take more technology. It just takes more labor. Noah's Ark is not so far-fetched. When we are used to seeing something and someone changes it, for many of us, we just don't like change. Some of us rebel against that. So is Noah's Ark a real ship or just a fairy tale? The Bible teaches that it was a real historical event. But is that what we are teaching our children? Often when you open up a children's book and see the Ark, it looks like an overloaded bathtub with giraffes sticking their head out of the chimney. It looks as if it could sink at any moment. And it makes sense in a children's room to paint Noah's Ark in a cartoon style. It's friendly, it's bright, it's exciting. But there is a dark side. These children grow into adults. And on their way, if all they can remember is this cartoon picture of the ark, we have a whole generation who have grown up in the church, and they look at what they've been taught in the Bible as a group of stories and fairy tales. Is the Bible lying about Noah's Ark? Is it lying about Jesus? Is the Bible lying about sin? Is the Bible lying about heaven and hell? Can I trust the Bible to be true? I love that at Rockbrook, the students here are taught that Noah's Ark was a real boat, just as the Bible describes, that saved humanity so you could be born. The waters rose and increase greatly on the earth. 
and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Was it really a global flood? Sadly, there are many Christian colleges that teach it was only a local flood. I like this cartoon. Look at that beautiful rainbow. It's a promise from God that he'll never again flood the entire earth as he did in Noah's day. My Christian college professor said that Noah's flood didn't cover the entire earth. He told you it was just a localized flood? That's what he said. So he believes that God promised to never again send a localized flood? We've seen lots of localized floods. What we haven't seen again is a global flood. The Grand Canyon is amazing. I looked up the Grand Canyon in Wikipedia. Nearly two billion years of Earth's geological history have been exposed as the Colorado River and its tributaries cut their channels through layer after layer of rock while the Colorado Plateau was uplifted. While some aspects about the history of incision of the canyon are debated by geologists, several recent studies support the hypothesis that the Colorado River established its course through the area about five to six million years ago. That's one hypothesis. Is there another way that the Grand Canyon could have formed? Is there an observable way that the Grand Canyon could have formed? When I was a little kid, Mount St. Helens erupted. It is a small volcano in Washington State, a tiny mountain in a small location. If a minuscule, tiny, not very big, little, inky-dinky, okay, do you see where I'm headed? Small compared to a global event. If that small thing was a huge destructive force that changed the landscape, and formed miles and miles of what they call the Little Grand Canyon. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens, located 95 miles south of Seattle, Washington, erupted. The eruption was triggered by an earthquake centered beneath the mountain that measured 5.1 on the Richter scale. The lateral blast swept out the north side of Mount St. Helens at 300 miles per hour with temperatures as high as 660 degrees Fahrenheit and the power of 24 megatons of thermal energy, it snapped 100-year-old trees like toothpicks and stripped them of their bark. Before the famous eruption at Mount St. Helens, scientists were mostly familiar with slow-acting examples of geologic change. But at Mount St. Helens, geologists watched the Earth's surface change quite rapidly. Icebergs were buried in hot avalanche material. They melted and formed badlands in days. Eruptions on May 18 and June 10 produced fine layers in hours. On June 10, mud flows cut zigzag canyons 100 feet deep in soft sand and mud, complete with perpendicular side canyons. Canyons that are reminiscent of the geography of Grand Canyon only 40 times smaller and clearly produced within hours. Mud flows over the following decade cut hundreds of feet into solid rock in just days of cutting time. Fallen trees formed a log mat on the surface of Spirit Lake 
and dropped bark to the bottom of the lake, accumulating up to three feet of bark peat in just a couple years. And vertically floating logs sinking to the bottom of the lake resulted in buried trees in only a decade. Similar to the trees of Yellowstone's fossil forest, which are also buried in volcanic layers. Even though Mount St. Helens is a very small catastrophe compared to the flood, or the major catastrophes immediately following the flood, it provides a better clue to what happened in those times than the slow geologic processes which are most commonly seen in the present. So what do you do? Well, here's what I think you need to do when it comes to the flood not being so far-fetched. You need to read up, listen up, and speak up. I can't give you all the information about Noah, the ark, and the flood. There's just too much. There, there's genetics, there's fossils, there's more geology, there's just too much to cover. So you need to read up on that for yourself so that you're educated. Read up. You become educated yourself. You can make good decisions, and you can help your friends wrestle through it. You want to listen up. Listen to what teachers are saying. Listen to what your friends are talking about. The Bible makes it very clear that God wants us to question things that are being taught. Figure out if what you are taught lines up with God's word and is true. So listen up, be willing every once in a while to speak up, be willing to share your opinion with other people, be willing to raise your hand in class, maybe ask a question that shows the other side of the coin a little bit. Just be willing to speak up. And if you've read up and you've been listening, you can probably speak up with a little bit more confidence. But be willing to speak up when God gives you those opportunities. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you that you have filled those of us who believe with your presence. Now, God, may we be led by your spirit. May we be different because we were here and your spirit moved in our hearts took my broken words, and did something in our lives. That we might be different, not led by our own desires, not led by false teaching, not led by the ways of the world, but that we are led by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.